This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever it is that you're streaming. We are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and later tonight I'll be joined by Vaishnaviva Jerkuma to review Luca Guadagnino's outlaw teen romance, Bones and All, which some lucky Triple R subscribers saw a few days ahead of its release as part of our Triple R subscriber screenings. And if you want an opportunity to win tickets to our next one, do make sure you subscribe to the station. Simply head to rrr.org.au. Plus, later tonight, I'm going to be speaking with Susan Bu and Chiara Polini, who are the festival programmers for the upcoming Japanese Film Festival, which is in its 26th year. And I'll be, um, it's going to be kicking off in Melbourne this Wednesday and running until the 4th of December. And here in Melbourne, we also have a fantastic collaboration between ACME and Fed Square called Not So Silent Cinema with the support of Creative Victoria and the City of Melbourne. So Not So Silent Cinema is a free screening series of silent films, which is accompanied by some Not So Silent bands. It starts on Friday and is going to be running all weekend. I'm now joined by one of the composers being featured in this series, the wonderful Kiara Kickdrum. Kiara, welcome to Primal Screen. Hi, Flick. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, Kiara, I feel like a lot of listeners will be familiar with your music, but can you talk us through some of the how you first got started in music and kind of mm-hmm. what, you're, what you focus on? Yeah, sure. Well, long story, but I started <laughs> when I was very little and I studied piano, uh, classical piano. Then I moved into jazz when I was in my teenage years. Uh, and then after moving from Italy to Australia, I got into electronic music. And uh, that's when everything changed for me and got into DJing, collecting records, started, you know, playing around with software and scenes and that kind of thing. And then from there, I, it just became from a passion to more of an actual hobby. So I was doing it more often than not. And then... Um, I found, you know, I, g- I got a job in a studio doing just audio editing for voiceovers. Um, this was in 2014, I think, around that time. And then after that, I moved into making music for um, ads yeah. in a studio called Electric Dreams, which is in South Melbourne. And then from there, I moved into doing some little things for theatre, then short film, and then TV, and then film. <laughs> <laughs> and then just kind of... And so, yeah, so, you know, I can go into details about it. But, um, uh, yeah, it was, it's been quite, quite the journey. And, I'm uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's a very varied um, uh, discography, I suppose, but also a huge amount of different mediums that you're working within. I'm really excited about this new series that's um, being presented by Acme and Fed Square. I love the concept. So a collection of silent films mm-hmm. that are then being paired with um, live musical scores. Yeah. Um, can you tell us what we've got on the lineup? I, it's going to be starting on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, so Friday we've got Philip Johnson and he's actually presenting two films. One is Cops and the other one is Trip to the Moon, which I actually saw Jeff Mills 
do a live score for oh, in wow. Nantes in France. Oh. This was maybe like, yeah, it was it was incredible. This is one of the things that actually inspired me when I was doing this call because it was really random. I was there for another festival and, and then it just came up that he was doing this live score for this silent film and it was mind-blowing, amazing. Um, and then I'm on the Saturday with a string quartet live and Zach Hayes, electronic musician. And then Sunday, on the 4th, uh, there's a film called A Page of Madness and composers Mark we- Marcus Well and Jacques Emery, I think I've said it right, uh, would be presenting oh, the film. Cool. So, yeah. Yeah. How did, um, how did it work with the collaboration? Was it something where you got presented with a series of films or did you select Vampire yourself? Yeah, look, actually, this is a bit of an old project because I already presented this at Acme in 2018. But it was just myself uh, with another curator, always obviously with Acme. And the curator got in touch and he said, yeah, we got this film. It was actually the time of collaboration with the Goethe Institute. Uh, and so, yeah, and they said, we got this film. We love what you're doing because my, I guess, Chiara kick drum practice when I'm not composing, composing, more electronic musician, Chiara, playing live <laughs> techno and, you know, doing crazy <laughs> stuff like that. Um, but anyway, so they thought it would be, I would be a good fit. And I, at the time, actually, four years ago, I had never even done a score for a feature film ever, you know. So it was a huge thing for me. Anyway, I, I agreed to do it and, you know, it, it went really successful. It was really successful. We presented it in Sydney, Canberra. And, uh, and yeah, and then a few months ago, they got in touch with me again and said, we'd love you to represent it. And if you like to have, you know, some live musicians or to, if you want to do it bigger, we can do that. And um, yeah, so we're doing it with the string quartet uh, on the stage of Federation Square and obviously with Zach as well. It was helping with the electronic side of things. And, uh, and yeah, so it's going to, it's going to be an amazing show. Um, so it's, Mostly my original soundtrack and score that I've done with some little changes and, you know, um, upgrades, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the string quartet on top. So it's, you know, full classical electronic film score. Um, and, you know, over the top of this silent film from 1932. Um, so it's going to be mind-blowing. Absolutely. <laughs> kind of how did you um yeah. how, what what's your kind of what was your first introduction to to the film because it's a, yeah like you say from 1931 it's a silent film mm-hmm. i feel as though a lot of listeners won't be well, may not have heard of it but may not have actually seen it on particularly not on the big screen with a huge mm. audience and a live score mm. so how did you first come across the film uh well it was actually the Gauthier institute and the curator at the time, that sent me the film, and they said, yeah, "This yeah. is, you know, it's a it's a cult horror film, like Nosferatu, and all those. It's like at the top ten horror best horror films ever made." Yeah, kind of yeah. Because uh, the director was doing pretty, you know, it was pretty ahead of the time from, with some of the techniques, uh, shooting techniques, and things that he was doing. Um, yeah, so they sent it to me, and I and I watched it, and I had no idea what was going on because <laughs> it had, had no subtitles. But you know, I got the gist of it, and you know, I'm attracted to anything that's, you know dark and mysterious and weird and experimental so obviously I said yes yeah (laughs) vampire definitely fits in with that Um, absolutely how you've worked across so many different mediums I'm curious how you approach this you know looking at a silent film and deciding what to put in there because Mm. we were talking off air about um some other kind of similar events like the hear my eyes series which is coupling Mm -hmm. like reimagining the score but there is a score that an original score, at least with those. With mm-hmm. this, this is all silent films. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're basically 
coming up with something for the first time for for this footage. Mm. Um, how did how did the creative process work for you? Yeah, look, there is actually a score for the film. Um, it's very orchestral, obviously, very oh, classical. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, because uh, that was exactly what was being played. Yeah. yeah. Did you have access yeah, to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I heard it, and as soon as I heard it, I was like, "This is <laughs> what I'm gonna do." And um, and because because it's a horror film, and because it just um, you know ticks all those dark, experimental, yes. weird, <laughs> you know. <laughs> crazy uh, boxes that I love um, and you know obviously I've, I've you know I've been listening to especially at the time I was listening to a lot of um, you know Candy Ray and uh, obviously Jeff Mills but um, you know Sakamoto, Alvanoto, mm. um, you know ASC uh, and just a lot of Plastic Man you know this Richie Otten but more the you know the electronic stuff you know FX all that stuff for me is Otek um that that's always been um you know my my main influences i guess mm. in general uh when i dj when i compose obviously not when i compose for for, t- for tv because <laughs> I, I get fired straight away <laughs> <laughs> but it, in this instance i really had the i just really saw it as an opportunity to to do something where i could just push something really different yeah, and uh, and be yeah. me at the same time because yeah. sometimes obviously when you work uh with the director with producers with you know tv and film um you can still be yourself but there is some um some um um some things that you need to yeah some compromises um and so and for this it was really just you know do whatever you want and um and so yeah so with that in mind that I just started um playing around with some sounds and obviously I mainly did that um score with a synth called Virus TI and uh and that was probably the biggest inspiration because I believe that you know obviously whatever you're working with that's your first inspiration regardless of you know who you listen to and what you mm. you know uh what you love um so depending you know if you sit at the piano if you play with this synth if you play with that synth what comes out is just different that informs mm. what you're gonna make um and this was just yeah it just works so beautifully and and um and so i made the score mainly with that and obviously with a lot of you know other little bits and pieces but um that was a huge, huge, huge influence on on this core. Um, mm. Yeah, it's and fantastic hearing that your experience of that was that you were given kind of free reign on on these decisions. And I love this pairing between nineteen thirties film and contemporary music. Yeah, um, you mentioned before some of your TV work. So you mm. composed the original soundtrack for Netflix's series Heartbreak High. I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> What was Have that like? It? Yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. yeah. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> that was an incredible experience. It's um obviously the first the biggest thing I've I've ever done. Yeah. Um and you know, huge shout out to Gemma from Post Points uh for you know always being super supportive. Yeah. Um and um but um yeah, look, it was it was an incredible experience on, on many levels. You know, yeah. there's good good and bad things <laughs> when it comes to these big projects because you know you're you know, you're doing something that you, I would have never dreamed that yeah. I would do something like this ever in my life, you know. Um, uh, but then obviously it comes at a cost because it's a lot of work, you yeah. know. The schedule uh, changes all the time. There's yeah. a lot of music to write. and uh, But 
I, I can't tell you like yeah how amazing of an experience it was because it's such a beautiful show yeah. um, you know uh, the, the directors the producers everyone was just so you know open to just let me do basically yeah whatever I wanted um, obviously in the context of what I you know what I of the brief I of suppose. the brief yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah and it was just yeah I don't know it's like a dream come true really yeah um, so I'm yeah. very very grateful for it. Well, it would be exciting. I mean, I feel like it's you're you're cro- you're traversing such um, such different territory uh, with this new series, and um, mm. I love the concept. Like I said, not so silent cinema yeah. um, film series. I I did hear that there is going to be free gelato. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is a that friend, really? Is that true? I think so, because a friend of mine sent me a link, Dan, actually. I don't. Um, but yeah, she sent me a like, broadsheet. It was like a broadsheet article. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it actually said something like, oh, so, you know, it didn't even say my name. It was like, Heartbreak Eyes, Netflix composer. <laughs> <It's just gonna laughs> and there's free ice cream as well. <laughs> You're going to be doing, handing out the ice creams? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. No, it should be really – no. I'm really excited about this. And um, it's yeah. going to kick off this Friday in, in Fed Square and mm-hmm. I'm going to play a bit of your live score that you're going to be presenting on, on Saturday. Sure. yeah. Um, I think it would be really fantastic seeing it in that space mm. um, and, and, yeah, of course, we'll have this live screening of Vampire, Vampire um, at 8pm. It's kicking off mm-hmm. and um, I've uh, – I suppose yeah. there's, there's two other screenings that are happening, like you said, on the Friday and, and the Sunday. And one on the Sunday, yeah. Um, so listeners can, can head to um, fedsquare.com um, mm-hmm. for more information about this screening and all the others that are in the series. Um Kiara, it has been so lovely having you on the show. Thank you so much um, for having me. Yeah, yeah. I hope that um, Saturday's performance goes well. Yeah, same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if not, you've got yeah. ice cream now. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. So last week, Bones and All was released in Australian cinemas. This is uh, the latest film from the revered Italian director Luca Guadagnino who gave us that iconic peach scene in the 2017 romantic drama Call Me By Your Name. Uh, He also offered a revamped Suspiria in 2018 and is also responsible for 2015's A Bigger Splash and the exceptional I Am Love plus many, many more. Suffice to say there's been a lot of buzz about this film and to help me unpack it I am joined by guest reviewer Vaishnavi Vajokma. How are you going Vaish? Good, how are you? Very well. We, um, this is a very fresh, fresh in our minds because we both saw it at separate screenings last night. Um, I, <laughs> I did actually, for subscribers who came along to our Triple R subscriber screening, I did present the film and then got um, very unwell. Not linked to the film, but I did get very unwell during the screening and had to leave <laughs> after about 10 minutes. So I watched it again uh, last night. Uh, Vaish, what are, your, what are your first thoughts on this? Um. So speaking of being unwell, so <laughs> when, when I, um, this has never happened to me before ever within about probably about like maybe 15 to 20 minutes of the film, there was this one scene that my body just had a visceral 
reaction to where I just started to feel nauseous and faint and I literally had to like lie down for 10 to 15 minutes and then kind of like get back into the film and it had never happened to me before and so it was kind of wow. like oh what what um how far in did you say probably about 15 to 20 minutes oh so my... it's probably the first yeah. scene um it's it's not the first scene where we uncover the context where she's you know yeah. we realize she's a cannibal it's um, the... I should say before we get into further detail, if you've only watched the trailer to Bones and All and you want to keep some things secret and sacred, I think you could always listen back to this episode another time at rrr.org.au because we might, we won't of course give spoilers because that's not what we're about, but we may ruin some of the intrigue if you're not already aware what uh, ground. Phones and all covers. <laughs> um, but sorry to interrupt you, Vaish. As no, you were no, saying, no, that's a good point. Uh, I was like, how much do I give away? But um, we it's can, one of the yeah. early scenes where she kind of meets an older, um, experienced, one might say, um, cannibal who kind of is showing her the way of the world. And I found that scene to be quite graphic, but I was mm. just like, okay, I'm just going to like briefly pause in between this whole thing. But then my body just had a reaction and I just didn't expect it. But That is exactly think- the scene that I walked out on. Um, and not related, not related to, I did genuinely have, I'm very heavily pe- pregnant, so it was related to my blood pressure. But um, I, yeah, it's a, it's a quite an unsettling film. I remember I made the joke at the start of the screening about like, let's find out together how gory this is, because that was the most searched item that came up when you look up bones and all. What's your feeling though on the gore level? Because I feel like it's more of a disconcerting film rather than gory. I think the, I mean, the, elements the, the scenes, gore, yeah, like the, the, the scenes that are gory are quite vivid. So if you're someone who may not have um, the stomach for it, that's <laughs> something to be mindful of. And actually when I went to the cinema, there was a bit of a sign disclaimer saying that like, if you're going to go see Bones and All, please be aware. There's some very graphic oh, footage really? here. Yeah, which, which I had never seen before. So that was really interesting. I hope my, but- my incident of leaving it after 10, 15 minutes didn't contribute to that. <laughs> they were just like, this is the precedent. We can't have this happen again. Um, so I found that interesting. But in terms of the actual film itself, I feel like it spaces out those more graphic scenes quite well um, and really focuses on the story and the character development and that kind of underlying tension that always sits under a horror film where there's the um, this kind of anticipation that something terrible is going to happen yes. and you don't know when. Um, and any at any moment, that moment might resurface or surface but it's very, yeah, it's it, it's just this kind of tension that kind of sits throughout. And I was thinking about how music kind of contributes mm. to this in the horror genre. And I felt like in this film, there was this kind of like, I don't know, it's like a progressive rock kind of mm. edge, like, you know, that real kind of um, experimental rock vibe that sits underneath that creates that kind of tension that yeah. and unease that you feel throughout that's so that's really interesting you picked up on that because I was just chatting Chiara to Chiara off air about the fact that what music is played through this so really interesting score by um Trent Reznor and um Atticus Finch and this idea of um you know we've got some Leonard Cohen in there we've got some Joy Division we got we've got some New Order it's a really interesting mix 
I feel like this film is so curious because it's almost positioned as a coming of age road trip. And so that kind of rock music that you talk about is um, kind of capturing the horror of middle America, I suppose. And I listened to a fantastic interview with the screenwriter of Bones and All, and I'll try to find their name in a second. Um, I think it was David Kajanganich. I'm possibly ruining that. But this Bones and All is based on a novel by um, Camille D'Angelis, and he talked a bit about that kind of hesitation of being like, this woman has written this amazing book. Um, we now have a male director and a male screenwriter who are going to be adapting it. Some of the horror in Bones and All has to do with this young girl's negotiation of these spaces and this new law that she comes upon and the, the rules that of this new world and um, the different men that she meets, and it's mainly men um, – who are maybe at these points of uh, difficult negotiation. One in particular is this character, Solly, and he is unlikable in a way that is really hard to put your finger on. And something that I think stood out for me is that the discomfort that um, – and it's a wonderful performance by Taylor Russell, I have to say, but her performance as Marin, she has this exchange with Solly in which she cannot quite pick – put her finger on what she finds so upsetting about him or, or she feels uncomfortable in his presence. And on the surface, he's like, but I'm so friendly and I'm, I'm all this. But he's so uncomfortable and it's an amazing performance by Mark Rylance but so disturbing. Um, how did you feel about that interaction between those two characters? And then we have, of course, Timothy Chalamet entering the scene as Lee. What was, what was your thought on those interactions? Like I definitely hear what you're saying and I actually loved the maturity in which she navigated that scene yes. with this older man who, to be honest, had a very predatory kind of nature about him in the way that, um, you know, conversations have come about in terms of gender dynamics and age differences and the power imbalances that sit within that. And the idea that women have to navigate these situations where they're kind of approached in very non-consensual ways and have to carefully unpack that and navigate that and influence that to try and get out of quite at times dangerous situations. Absolutely. Like women are always negotiating that. Mm. And I thought like Taylor Russell in this film is absolutely superb. She's the maturity wonderful. that you carry, she carries in this. And, you know, in terms of the context or the concept of the film, you know, about teenage cannibals, it sounds farcical, but within where it's set in, in middle America, um, where it feels like, you know, there are so many shows that have been set in middle America that have maybe like a supernatural kind of element that that speaks to some of the inequities that exist there. And I felt like there was that element here where it's like, it just felt so real. Like it felt like this is a very plausible story of what could happen in this setting. Um, and, I, so and I think true. that's part of the reason why my body had such a reaction because it actually felt quite real. Yes. Yeah. And unfortunately, quite a relatable experience. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting and I don't know if you had this experience in your screening and I spoke to other friends who saw this film over the weekend, um, but the experience of audience members laughing through certain scenes and I found that really strange because my feeling is this is, you know, Bones and All is quite a sombre film in a lot of ways and one of the things that stood out to me was the screenwriter, um, uh, sorry, I forgot his name again, second time, Daniel Kajanich, Um, He talked a bit about how horror 
you know, we have this idea that it's about fear, but it's actually often about sadness and rage. And I thought, how perfectly does that encapsulate often the teenage narrative of of when you're growing up and you're trying to make sense of the world you don't really have full freedom and we see that with Marin where she um is having to and and also Lee who's a fascinating figure in himself and Timothy Chalamet performance is exceptional as well they they really meet each other in fact I feel as though all of the actors in this just deliver so well and that might be down to Guadagnino's um exceptional direction but they that that idea of sadness and and rage and these very lost lost kind of teens I, I loved that the film also even though it is about something very specific which in case you haven't realized is teen cannibals well actually cannibals in general um, is also a bit of a comment on addiction and and poverty and um, abuse and these kind of parental lines that are disrupted in some way and kind of these these listless kids who are bringing up themselves in this rather desolate um, America. <laughs> and I found that such a curious position to you know I love the setup of this and Guadagnino is so skilled at creating a sense of place and I as much as this film definitely has some horrific moments (laughs) I was so moved by it yeah like to be honest I, I know exactly what you mean as it got into the character journeys I was just so immersed and invested in their stories and it's so funny that you say that about um, the horror genre and how that brings out these other kind of existential themes because I feel like as of late and I've been talking to friends about this that like there has been a lot of Gen Z horror films that have come about and it's like why is there this sudden kind of resurgence of the resurgence, sorry, of that kind of um, content? Um, and I read this article on this platform called Little White Lies, which is like independent journalism, Love. and they talk about Love that. Yeah, <laughs> can recommend. Like I, yeah, like I found their take on it really interesting, which is like you know the absence of parents mm. enables these children to or teenagers to to go on this journey of trying to uncover things about themselves and the way they see the world. Um, the whole idea of that nostalgia kind of retro aesthetic um and you know it's funny because I feel like the 90s are so in right now but the 80s were so in in the 90s and I feel like (laughs) you know with some of the aesthetics it did have quite I mean it was set in the 80s so there were very much those nods to the that um era of time through both the visuals the way the characters were dressed and the music oh I've just lost you for a sec in terms of the music choice um and and things like that so I yeah, like, and the insatiable consumption bit, like, you know, the, the cannibalism <laughs> is actually a thing for, a metaphor for consumerism and the need to have more and more. Yes, um, yes. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, that is so, and I, I love that Guadagnino goes into those, and he, he often does, like, if you think about Call Me By Your Name again, we've got this completely different, you know, 80s kind of, I think pretty sure it's 80s, it's been a while since I've seen that film, but yeah. it, it captures that so well and it evokes it, but not in a, not in a kind of cliched way or let's have heaps of 80s tracks he does it in such a way that it feels sincere and I I think that I wonder on some level whether it's a return to you know sometimes directors are working out stuff in their own life and I, I I find him he seems to return back to this sense of the youth at the cusp of of adulthood um you know we haven't spoken much about Timothy Chalamet but 
his, um, you know, he really captures that in a really fascinating way. There's a vulnerability, particularly to his performance of Lee, quite different, very, very different from his character in Call Me By Your Name. But still this really curious um, masculinity that's on screen and in quite strong contrast to to characters like Solly and some other men that they meet along the way. And I just cannot say enough good things about Taylor Russell. I hadn't really seen her on screen before, though. Had you? No, I felt like maybe, like I did know that she was maybe potentially in like some fashion shows and things like that, but I haven't seen her act in anything. And I do feel like this is a bit of a um, breakthrough moment for her. Like I feel Mm. like we're going to see her in more independent cinema following being featured in this film. And, yeah, Timothy Chalamet was brilliant. I I think he plays those really gritty, troubled kind of teenage characters quite well. Like I felt like this character and how hardened this character felt reminded me of that film he was in with Steve Carell, um, Beautiful Boy, I think it's called, um, where he plays the son who's also also dealing with a different kind of addiction um but I think he plays yeah plays these characters really well with this kind of vulnerability and kind of rough edge that I think worked in this film really well yeah I agree and I, I'm curious to know what, how people will respond to this film because there's there's almost a slowness to to bones and all and uh, like you said there are moments of, of real discomfort but I just feel like there's so much more to unpack in it. And it's made me really curious to read the original book because I wasn't familiar at all with it. And I, I'm i interested to see, to know what Guadagnino has taken from it and, and what has remained. And, and obviously that's got to do with the screenwriter as well. But I think it's quite a curious setup. And, and I just think, you know, if we're going to just take a second to think about Guadagnino more generally – what a fascinating um, canon <laughs> he has created. Um, I, I don't, it's hard to pick a favourite. I feel as though bigger, A Bigger Splash doesn't get enough attention, but that yes. has got to be one of my favourite films. I just It's stuck with me for a really long time. Suspiria, of course, I know there's some mixed reviews around that, I suppose a different kind of horror that he's engaging with on screen. Um, call Me By Your Name, of course. Do you have, do you have a favourite Guadagnino? I did really love um, Call Me um, By Your Name. It was like one of those films that I came out of um, feeling like it kind of touched on all those coming of age feelings of like, you know, falling in love with someone and, um, you know, it ending in quite a devastating way and that relationship really helping you grow up. And obviously just the beautiful setting in in Italy. I just, I just really loved it. Mm. Um, And also that pairing of music, like one of my favorite scenes of that film is seeing um, Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet dancing in this beautiful way to um, Love My Way by Psychedelic Furs. And that scene still just sticks in my mind. It's just like a beautiful, kind of unfurling of that relationship (laughs) Um, but funnily enough it's like something I thought about and was actually talking to um, the ticket attendees at the cinema was that like it's really interesting that Luca Guadagnino has chosen to do this film with Timothy about cannibalism when Army Hammer has been accused of being a cannibal Oh, I, I was like, I really yeah. checked the product when the production started on this to see if like one influenced the other. It's like, I mean, what better way to kind of you know a PR angle for the film? Really? <laughs> and who knows? Maybe maybe Army was just like getting in some method acting. <laughs> Let's. I'm, I'm not going to go on air defending Army. <laughs> <laughs> 
but, um, that's, that's a downward spiral we don't want to yeah. go down. But it is it is really curious, isn't it? And I, I love that you've touched upon the music because I feel like music plays such an important role as well in Bones and All. We mentioned briefly about the um, original soundtrack done by um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Finch, but there's also just some interesting music choices. And I thought the one that really stood out to me, unfortunately I'm not going to play it but because it goes for very long, but um, the inclusion of Leonard Cohen's um, You Want It Darker, is that the title? Um, but he, I thought that was such an interesting music choice because you really have these kids who are almost playing, you know, they take <laughs> they take uh, people's cars and, and kind of they, they, that allows for them to traverse space but it also is kind of this playing at act uh, at adulthood and I, I loved that they had this inclusion of something that was probably playing you can imagine that song playing in, in one of the the victims cars <laughs> um, not to get too dark but uh, yeah I, I just thought it was a beautiful beautiful work I, I really can't fault anything about um, Guadagnino's Bones at all I'm curious to see how people respond I don't think it will be everyone's cup of tea um, but I, I do encourage everyone to check it out. It is currently playing at all local and independent cinemas. Vaish, thanks so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure thanks, to chat with you. <laughs> always a pleasure. Thanks, Blake. So here in Melbourne, we are days away from the launch of the 26th Japanese Film Festival, which, which kicks off on Wednesday. I'm now joined by two of the festival programmers, Susan Boy and Chiara Polini. Welcome to Primal Screen. Thank you. Ah, Thank hello. you for having us. <laughs> My pleasure. It's lovely having not in the studio, but we're <laughs> via via um, uh, remote means. <laughs> um, so, first of all, can you tell our listeners a bit about the history of the Japanese Film Festival? Because twenty six years is very impressive. Yeah. So, the Japanese Film Festival is. Um, an initiative run by the Japan Foundation Sydney, which is an organization um, implemented by the Japanese government to promote Japanese culture. Um, so it originally started in Sydney in one of our classrooms, uh, just presenting um, Japanese films on a projector to about 20 people, an audience of about 20. Um, and since then, it's grown to be a festival that travels to five major cities across Australia. We also now have an online program and the festival as part of the Japan Foundation Festival runs across um, about over 10 countries across the world. Wow, wow. That is quite a that's quite a bit of a stretch and I suppose um for listeners who are outside of um Melbourne, I know that it's screening. It started in Sydney, is that right for this for this one? It started in Canberra. Canberra, sorry, yeah. On the 5th of yeah. November. Oh, wow. So that's a long stretch for you um, and we're about to kick off for Melbourne. Um, can you tell us a bit about what you've got uh, featured in, in the festival? Yes. Um, this year we are pleased to offer the, our audience like 10 of the best pick of Japanese latest releases, plus uh, four 34mm old Japanese film prints by uh, Master Naruse Mikyo. And uh, yeah, so there's a bit of, um, for everyone at this festival. We have uh, comedies, we have uh, psychological thrillers, we have uh, action films and uh, a bit of drama too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... Um, 
in terms of like, yeah, um, I would like to remember to remind that uh, 35 millimeters uh, prints are very hard to screen in Australia nowadays. So, uh, and it's a free program. So um, audience interested in all Japanese films, and even if you're not like just to see a bit of what what's like, should definitely jump in. Uh, uh, tickets are uh, sell not selling, but like they're being booked very fast. And um, so, yeah, definitely. Um, they should they should book as soon as they can yes it's, yes uh, it's very rare uh, for Australia to be able to screen these prints we have them sent uh, directly from the Japan Foundation headquarters in Tokyo and uh, yeah so yeah this is a rare, a rare occasion to see uh, prints uh, of this kind yeah, I think that's what makes a lot of these festivals and we're very lucky here in Melbourne we really are the the city of cinema because I feel as though, something that gets in that sometimes gets missed when you're just attending the festival but there is a huge amount of work that goes into the curation and sourcing particularly like you say Kiara when you're dealing with um the you know quite um specific pr um, prints and things like that so um 35 millimeter is quite hard to get a hold of so yeah it's really interesting hearing um some of the the work that goes behind the scene on behind the scenes i was really um fascinated by um it, it, like you said there's a tremendous amount of genre um that you've you're covering through these I feel as though, um, you know, you've got a lot of uh, film talks as well as part of the festival. Can you talk a bit about what um, what will be screened as, as part of the that series? The film talks program? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that – so we've got one film, uh, post-film talk. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's actually only for our Sydney audience. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Um, <laughs> No, that's okay. I so, got excited um, about that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, unfortunately, with the COVID-19 pandemic, oh, we're, yeah. we're still recovering. Um, and so, you know, funding is a little bit slow and yeah. Yeah, people are still trying to uh, adjust to normal life. So hopefully next year we'll be able to bring um, a talk back to Melbourne. We usually do a talk in, uh, in three cities. We try to do a talk in most of the cities, um, but that, talk is about the um 35 millimeter free program which is playing at um which is yeah sorry playing at Shawvel, but in acme it is playing uh in melvin it's playing at acme oh my gosh we're all over the place <laughs> I, um, you've got i mean you've got a festival that's spanning across a whole lot of cities i'm not surprised yeah, you're keeping of course well one of the things that stood out to me and uh, you know it's interesting when you've got a film festival that's all about a particular country You've got so much diversity included in the program, but is there something that you think really defines Japanese cinema? Yeah, well, uh, Japanese cinema is um, has a long history that spans over a hundred years, and um, it started like um, mostly uh, with films directed to a uh, domestic audience, tailored for domestic audience, in particular way in um, revolving around what is uh, what their cultural tropes are, what they uh, their religion is, uh, their soci sociological uh, links between different genders. 
And, and, and then, uh, especially in the last 20 years, um, uh, we can see that uh, Japanese directors are trying to tailor films uh, mostly, uh, not mostly, but uh, also considering Western audience. So they're trying to adapt a bit so that Western uh, audience can actually find them more attractive. But at the same time, I don't really think there is like that need because um, uh, foreigners are really attracted by the peculiarity of all this uh, sensitivity of Japanese symbolism. And I also have the feeling that um, some of the fascination behind um, Japanese cinema from a, from a Western perspective is that uh, there are some uh, small... Um, um, some, some small things that uh, they don't really get completely mm -hmm. and that uh, adds up a layer of fascination and uh, a mystery and that's that is why i think japanese uh, uh, films are uh, really really successful are getting more and more successful in the west as well also another peculiarity might be like the use of silence uh, silence is very present in japanese films and it doesn't necessarily mean like uh, that you are waiting for something to happen, but it's like uh, expressive itself. And uh, well, actually, just uh, just on that, that's really fascinating. I used to work for a Japanese company, and I remember um, being told that the time in which um, for, for, for Japanese speakers, it's quite normal to leave um, a bit more of a gap between when someone says something and when the next person <laughs> starts their whatever they're going to say, yeah. and that doesn't exist in a lot of uh, Western-speaking countries. Um, America, Australia, you know, we're so often talking over one another. And that's such a small shift, but it's really interesting that that also translates to the cinema because, um, you know, I think for a lot of um, Japanese audiences, it's tremendous to be able to see this huge collection as well, like not just for Westerners, but for Japanese people to see their culture and like different approaches as well. There's often when talk, people talk about Japanese cinema, it can sometimes just get limited to, you know, manga or these war films from a particular era. You know, it's quite a narrow understanding of this really diverse and, and quite complex history of cinema. So it's interesting hearing you talk about some of the cultural specificity that comes out in these films. Yeah, I agree with you, especially when you say that... Uh, uh, this this thing you say about like the dialogue between Japanese people, you really uh, see them like um, waiting for each other to finish speaking, also as a form of respect, obviously. But uh, also how much uh, nodding and making facial expressions is uh, important for them. If you do not nod or you don't say like mm, mm, they think you're not listening to them. <laughs> so it's really it's really I mean it's it's it's. I, something that I do appreciate also, uh, I am Italian myself, and I, there, there is a lot of that in Italian culture, not so much about the silence, mm -hmm. <laughs> but like more like the, not just gestures and the facial expressions is more important in like into building relationships between people so for listeners who are who are keen to get some tickets to the Japanese Film Festival, um, where should they head? <laughs> so um, uh, Tickets are available for purchase, uh, besides, obviously, uh, at the box office of uh, Palace Cinemas Kino uh, in Melbourne. Uh, also on the Japanese Film Festival website, which is, which is japanesefilmfestival.net. Yeah. And uh, in, if, we, if, you, if they're interested in the special uh, series, the free, uh, screen, free, free screenings of Naruse and Yukio's films, they can head to our Japanese Film Festival website or on ACME uh, website. 
um, which is obviously the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Yes, of course. Well, um, Susan and, and um, Chiara, thank you so much for your time and, um, and best of luck with the festival. Thank you, Thank you so much. much. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. And yes, I'm very excited about the NEO subscriber screening that's happening later this week. Um, if you're one of the very lucky Triple R uh, subscribers, you may be coming along to that screening. So I'll see you then. Um, and we, of course, last week got to see um, Bones and All, which we reviewed on tonight's show. Um, and for more information about the Japanese Film Festival, and I, and I just spoke with Susan and Kiara, the programmers from that festival, you can head to japanesefilmfestival.net. On tonight's show, it's been a mixed bag of all sorts of different festivals and events and, and reviews. Um, I spoke with Kiara Kickdrum about her immersive live score to the 1931 horror classic Vampire, which is going to be screened and performed this Saturday in Fed Square as part of the Not So Silent Cinema series. It is a free screening and it kicks off on Friday and it's going to be running all weekend. So you can head to fedsquare.com for the full details. I also had Vaishnavi Vajekuma join, uh, jump on to discuss Luca Guadagnino's latest film, Bones and All, which is currently screening at all local and independent cinemas. I highly recommend that you check it out. Um, it is a little bit gory, but it is well worth it. Um, and we finished up the hour with Susan Boy and Chiara Polini, the festival programmers of the Japanese Film Festival, which is kicking off on Wednesday and is going to be running until the 4th of December. So for the full program and to buy your tickets, you can head to japanesefilmfestival.net. Uh, if you missed any of tonight's show, uh, you can, of course, listen back online at rrr.org.au or you can subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. Um, big thank you to all my guests for their time tonight. Uh, and thank you also to Luke Lay for editing our podcast and doing all the socials. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 